Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. Welcome back to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Ganinen and I am your host. On this week's episode, we got to welcome my friend Kim Hickey, who's a management consultant and coach for Automotive Training Institute. And what we talked about in this podcast was uh, really the importance of adaptation and not doing things the way that you've always done them from a shop's perspective. And Kim has the really the insight from a lot of different shops that she works with across the country. Her and ATI in general do a phenomenal job at coaching their clients and and really putting them on the right track to making sure that they have a really, really good business. So in this podcast, Kim touches on a variety of different things and is really just a, a pleasure to talk to as always. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode and uh, everything that Kim's about to educate you on. She's, uh, she's a wealth of knowledge and does a really good job with this. So enjoy the episode. This week's episode of Beyond the Wrench, I'm excited to have our friend Kim Hickey from ATI join us. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. And you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's a pleasure to have you on. You and I have had a lot of conversations about the topic that we're going to discuss today. And I think it's relevant to pretty much any shop, which is kind of that mindset of a shop and maybe where we've we've got to adapt a little bit. So before we get into that, let's learn more about you. What do you do at ATI? And once we answer that, then we'll talk about your, your history and how you got to that point. So that's always, what do I do at ATI is always a challenging question because I have what I they call my day job. And then I have all my other passion projects that they graciously allow me to work on. But my main role there at ATI is I'm a director of client fulfillment. And my job is to ensure that all of our members are happy and successful and that our coaches have the support and the resources they need to make that happen. And I also handle some of the coach training and certifications and like executive coach training. I'm a master certified coach and trainer. And so I do a lot of the internal training for the coaches and certifications through ICF and then Profit First and some of the other things. So, but we also use outside certifications, as you know, as well. But, and I, so I oversee all of that coordination as well. Well, it's a it's a great company. You do a heck of a job at your job. And I always enjoy whether it's at Super Conference or just seeing you around at, at whatever event. You're kind of the life of the party. You always have a really good, a good, I don't know, attitude and are just always fun to be around. So I think everybody, I speak for everybody when I say that it's we enjoy you and, and always enjoy talking with you. So that's where this podcast is going to be a lot of fun. Now, how did you get to this point? What led you into your career with ATI? <laughs> so many years ago, I decided, I don't know, my early 20s, a kind of a long story. Actually, they can hear about it on my podcast if they want to, but I started a shop, I say on accident. And so I had moved, moved to Arizona to take care of my grandparents from New Jersey. And part of that was taking their car to get fixed. And long story short, I took their vehicle somewhere and you know, being young, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, they saw me come in and charged me. I don't remember now if it was 25 or $40 a tire. 
to take out high altitude air that because I was in Colorado and put in Arizona air. And so I knew that that didn't feel right in my gut. But, you know, they kind of said, okay, if you don't care about your grandparents getting in an accident and them dying. And so I was not going to be the cause of Nana and Pup Ups, you know, getting in a car accident. So I forked out the money, called my friends back home. They want to know the address because that guy was going back in a trunk. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I, I got this. I, I, I got this. So, well, so in talking to other people, very sadly, that was pretty prevalent in the town. When, when you, when you think about some of the things that people do and especially back then. And so they were just, it was a retirement community. And so there were a lot of widows that would actually go in a shop and say, Jay, Mr. Mr. Smith passed away. I've never touched anything on the car. I don't know anything about it. Here's a blank check. My grandson's coming. He's going to use a car, fix anything. They would charge these people $3,000 for a tune-up. They would charge spray paint shocks. And I, I just couldn't believe the more story. So it really made me angry. And I decided I would start, you know, a car repair thing. Right. So, you know, how hard could it be? I thought in my wisdom of all of my 20 something years to, to do that. Right. So I, there was somebody working next, next door to me that was a technician. And at the time I, I thought he was older than dirt and going to die any day. He was like 55. So to me, he was, you know, at, at the end of his useful life, you know? So I thought, well, you know, if I have him for a couple months or something, I, I, I started with him fixing my grandparents' car in my carport. And so then their friends were like, Hey, can that guy fix our car? And so it just grew and grew. And then I had 14 cars in the driveway and my neighbor said, listen, this, you're, you know, not doing it. So I found a little metal broken down shop and it had, it. they used to sell chicken out of it and it had a broken gas pump and it had one bay and cows literally would walk through it. And it was $500 a month. And I said, well, I can afford this. Cause that's one oil change a day. I think they were $20 at the time. So yeah. Who can't get one oil change a day, right? And I told myself and everyone else when they told me I was crazy that if I can't do one oil change a day, I have no business being in business. So bang, it was that simple. So yeah. Wow. So <laughs> I honestly don't think I knew the entire backstory there. That yeah. that is really cool. I and I, I think what's really awesome about that story is that you didn't know any better, right? So maybe you didn't fear some of the risk if you if you had been around the industry for a long time. You know, you, you don't know any better. You just go in and, and are trying stuff and seeing what works. And that's, that's a pretty fascinating story. Well, I'll tell you, you hit the nail on the head. That's what saved me because I didn't know anything. And had I, I would have been overcome with the same fears and doubts and limiting beliefs that many of the people in our industry still have. And so to me, there was nothing but possibilities. The sky was the limit. I saw this one base shop as, oh my gosh, what can I do? And it was five miles out of the way, either direction. There wasn't anything. It was on a road that used to go from Tucson to Nogales, Arizona, that once I-19 came in, no one used that road anymore. So no, there wasn't anybody driving by, there wasn't drive-by traffic. So all of the things that, you know, people are afraid of today, it's not on a main road, it's not whatever, there's not a beautiful building, it's not. And my little one-based shop wound up doing close to 500000 a year before I moved. And then I bought a brick and mortar location and was there for a while. And I was probably doing a little over a million a year, just all on word of mouth. I didn't do any kind of advertising. And then my gosh, I wasn't keeping any money. Right. And so that's when I found ATI. One of my vendors said to me, 
you know, gee, ever think about, cause I was like whining to them. Like, I don't have any money. I'm here seven days a week. I'm working, whatever. And, you know, doing all the things that everybody does. I don't want to be too high. I don't want to be more than my competition. I, you know, all of the things, the fears, right. So they actually said we're, you know, there's this thing this weekend, you know, for ATI, you know, do you want to go? And I'm like, I don't need that. I know everything, you know, so <laughs> that happened a couple of times. Cause I'm like, what are they going to tell me? I grew a business out of my carport into over a million dollars a year. I, you know, all of these things, I don't have to advertise. I have more cars that I know what to do with what, what can somebody else tell me? And so finally, I, I got a little smarter in my age and signed up with ATI and it was a game changer for me. And then that made my life, my job kind of obsolete. And so then I started working with ATI part-time and then turned into a full-time thing when I sold my shop. So that's everything in a nutshell. I love it. And I think, you know, I talk about my dad's experience with ATI a lot and, and how impactful it was for him. He'll be 30 years in business and he joined up with ATI probably four or five years ago at this point. But it, it did have a pretty profound impact on his business and how he was running his business and and how, you know, his direct happiness in terms of owning the business. Prior to that, he was very much, you know, he told me on multiple occasions, if somebody came and wanted this shop, I'd give him the keys and walk away right now. Oh, we've all been there. Yeah, been yeah, there. It's, it's a challenge, but you know, providing that structure and, and really that vision that I think ATI does a really good job at helps kind of drive happiness. You know, I think it drives you from not just completely being miserable when you go to work every day. And I think there's so much value in that. There is. And I think one of the biggest things, you know, people ask me, like, what was the biggest thing I learned? And that's so hard because there's so many things. But to not be afraid to, to break the mold. Right. I think that's, we all get so stuck in our head about this is the way it's always been done, or this is how we do it in the automotive industry, or this is, you know, whatever. And we're in this little silo in the automotive industry. And it, 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 it sort of breaks that open because not only do you have access to like thousands of other shop owners and get to meet with them and do that, but you see things that people do that you're like, Oh my gosh, I would have never thought that was possible. I didn't think somebody could do that in our industry. I didn't think that that was possible. And I I think that's where some of really the strongest lessons for me, you know, cause my, you know, I was knock on wood, very blessed. I mean, I worked really hard and, but I needed like a little tweaking with how, how do you price and how do you handle you know, some HR things and how do you handle different situations and how do you become a leader? But there wasn't like a huge broken thing at one time. Right. And so for me, it was allowing me to see what I could do and just what's possible and freeing up my mind from all the junk of, of every day to look at and say, what, what can I do? Because after being in the business for a while, you know, and you talk to other vendors and you talk to whatever, even though I didn't have that, I didn't start out with those limiting beliefs, being around the every day-to-day automotive people put those beliefs in my head. And I would talk to somebody, I'd be like, I want to do this. And they're like, you can't do that. This is automotive. You know, and it's like, why not? You know, I remember it was gosh, 30 years ago when I was doing my waiting room and I had a like a different colored stuff on the walls and I had just all decorated nice and there wasn't anything automotive. And 
the vendors and everybody are like, this doesn't look like a waiting room. Like you have to have car stuff. And I'm like, why do I have to have car stuff? And we went back and forth and the paper came and did a story on it and they compared it to a sunroom at an Arizona Inn. And I was so proud because I'm like, great. And everybody else was like, why would you do that? You're, do you want to have a coffee shop or do you want to have an automotive repair shop? And it's like, why, can I, why can't somebody come in and have a nice cup of coffee and get their vehicle service? Now that's, you know, everyone yeah. has a wonderful waiting room, but something that's silly, I got a lot of pushback from people that I knew and our parts people and other shop owners, like, that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? And it, it's sad that we get sort of stuck in these limiting beliefs, right? And start thinking that, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. And I want to go back to when you you opened your mind to maybe some different things. How much of it was you setting your ego aside to have somebody come teach you a different way of doing it? Oh my God. So huge ego. So, so that was huge. Like I, I told you the first few times people spoke to me about, you know, there's this thing coming up, you know, the vendors are different, whatever. I'm like, what can they possibly teach me? You know? And, and I was pretty proud of myself to say the least at the time. I mean, I'm, you know, in my late twenties, I have a business that I started out of my carport that's generating over a million dollars a year. All of the people that told me you're going to fail and you can't do that, leave out the part that I was a female. Let's even leave that out. But I didn't have any money when I started. I didn't have any backing. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any experience. And so I proved them all wrong. So my ego was pretty, pretty darn, it's pretty darn big at the time because I'm like, hmm. You know, so what are they going to show me? I'm doing all these things that everybody said I couldn't do. And that, that, you know, that hurt me because had I done that, I think I waited 13 years to go to join ATI and holy cow. Now I think what could have been possible had I done it, you know, the 10 years before or five years before. So ego is huge. Well, I don't even think it's just ego, right? You've you've got a chip on your shoulder because you're trying to prove people wrong, right? Like you're mm-hmm. you're you're and I I think that's very similar to a lot a lot of shop owners and managers, right? Like, hey, I got here, you know, and I worked my tail off to get to this point, and I'm not going to have somebody come in and kind of tear this thing apart because we've what we've built up until this time took a lot of work. It took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And I'm curious as to whether you see this as a common theme with maybe a shop that comes on uh, to the program now. Is it something that you see with shop owners where they, they've got that almost chip on their shoulder because they've worked so hard to do it? Absolutely. There's that. And also family traditions, you know, this is the way my father did it or my grandmother did it or whoever. So there's, there's a little bit of that too. And, you know, we get stuck in our ways and if something worked, we think it's going to work forever. And something that might've worked amazingly 30 years ago or 20 years ago is not most likely going to be what's working today. And I think that's a big piece of it too. We, we want to rest our laurels on what, what used to, to work. And, you know, I just would invite everybody, like one of the things that ATI taught me and, you know, you've learned in business is to look at the data and not emotion. Right. And so, you know, for an example, my labor rate was ridiculously low because 
I wanted to be right in the middle, we, that Oreo pricing of what all the other shops were. Well, all the other shops, you know, I had a 5,500 square foot before I bought the building next to it too. But in the beginning, the, the one that I bought was 5,500 square feet. And so I had very different expenses than the guy down the street that was renting a bay from the car wash, right? And, or doing it out of his home or like somebody like me with a carport. And so it was very foolish of me to want to nestle myself in the middle of that, right? And so I, here I am working all these hours and generating millions of dollars and not having any money. And so my coach in my case had to, I had to change my labor rate because I didn't understand too about loaded labor, right? I'm like, if I'm paying him $40 an hour and I charge $80 an hour and making a 50% profit, right? What, I, I don't know. What do I know? Right. So, and you don't always have to change your labor rate. In my case, I had to, or I wouldn't have stayed open, but I was, I was convinced, convinced. You could not tell me that if I changed my labor rate, that everybody wasn't going to leave. I mean, just absolutely. I just knew and nobody knew my customers and nobody knew my area and nobody knew. And I knew. And so, you know, my coach said, listen, all right, let's, let's do this. You know, let's try it for a week, just one week. And then you write down every customer that said something and said, I'm not coming back or, you know, did whatever or complained. And then we'll talk about it. So I was like, all right, I could do that. And I only did it, sadly to say, to prove my coach wrong. So I'm like, you want this written down? I'm going to write down every... <laughs> and the end of the week, there wasn't anybody that said anything. So I was like, hmm, okay. So <laughs> might be onto something here. <laughs> might be onto something here. So then that little win, I guess, made it easier to try the next one, right? It gave me confidence to try the next one. And, you know, when you talk about value proposition, my waiting room, might I talk to you about that? I had the best trained technicians. I bought them any piece of new equipment, whatever that came out that they needed. I, I was doing digital inspections before I had a Sony Mavica camera with a floppy drive or three and a half by five drive in there that I would email the pictures over the internet of AOL. It would take them, you know, three hours to get the picture, but Hey, I did it. So I didn't even understand my value proposition. Like no one was doing anything like I was doing, but I still had it in my head that I have to charge what that guy down the street is doing. Right. And so that's another thing that I really learned about is there is value to your value proposition. I mean, you can put a dollar to it and there's people that want that kind of service and there's people that don't, and that's okay because there's millions and millions and millions of vehicles out there. It's okay if everyone doesn't want to come to you. Some people might want to go somewhere else. That that's okay. Do the best you can do for the people that, you know, do come to you. I think there's so much importance in in what you learn there, right? Because that's that's going to be a lot of our discussion today is opening your mind to other ways of doing things and as it relates to running a business, uh, it can be really, really hard to do that. And I think having, you know, going through maybe what I have to imagine was kind of a difficult time and embracing change and, and bringing on a different philosophy altogether is challenging. But we often hear, you know, if you do it the way you've always done it, it, it you're going to be out of business, right? And I think that's going to be out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's so many examples of that. And our industry right now is changing about as fast as any industry out there. And I think the importance of 
challenging your own mindset is so important. And I want to know how you work with shops to do that, right? Like, so you've obviously seen thousands of businesses at this point in this space and being able to kind of pinpoint, okay, you know, maybe it is your labor rate, maybe it is something different, but you as a shop need to stay in your own lane and be able to figure out what those things are. And sometimes it might not be the most it's not going to be the easiest thing to change. Right. And it, it, it is because you've done it horribly uncomfortable, horribly yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. How, do, how do you, how do you get somebody to open up to, to really start to challenge themselves in that regard? Well, you know, there's a few things. So like with anything else, we have to understand the people we're working with their, their, I'll just call it buying personality because probably everybody understands that, right? Everybody understands information a different way. And it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence level, right? It's, you know, are you visual? Are you, do you need examples? Do you need data? Do you need what emotion? What is it? Like the five love languages, I always have everybody read, you know, my clients and people laugh, but it's really understanding the, the person that you're working with and how do they need to receive that information, right? Because if you have somebody that's really strong headed and strong, whatever. And I give them a coach. That's the same. They're going to be butting heads, right? So you have to understand one, who are you speaking with? And, you know, how do you deliver that information in a way that they're going to be able to absorb it? So that that's one thing Two, once you understand that and understand if they're, you know, if we use the bird test or whatever examples, I know there's millions out there, but you know, is it somebody that's really driven on processes or data or emotion, then you can explain the information in that way and say, here's, you know, if we put this process in place, this is what's going to happen. And you could tell them step-by-step if it's somebody that's, you know, more emotional driven and does things like that, then you can talk about, here's the feelings that that's going to be and and ask them. Right. So we do a lot of perceptual coaching with, you know, you know, picture that, what would this feel like? What would it be like if you could close the door five o'clock every day and never miss your kid's game? And how would that feel at home? What would your family dinners be like? So one, you know, depending on the person, Two, you have to really understand what that person's going through, right? The coach has to understand and and they have to not allow themselves to be de-skilled in the beginning because every every shop owner is going to tell you, we can't do that here. You don't understand our neighborhood's different. You know, we have different clientele. We don't have technicians here. There's so many things. And so you have to be able to look at the big picture and we have thousands of shops, right? So we have the luxury of knowing, yes, this really does happen in this town. You know, like we have a town where we have a few shops that the town shuts down when the 4-H fair comes, right? It's like, there's like two of them in the, in the entire country, but literally everything shuts down for that. So we understand that we know that too, but you know, Hey, what did you do for your marketing leading up to this? So don't tell me, Oh, it's slow this week for H came. Oh, so they just sprung it on you. Right. I always say that about like Christmas too. Oh, who the heck snuck that into the calendar this year? Those dirty, dirty Hallmark calendar people just snuck in that holiday. We didn't know. Right. So you have to understand really where, where it is, what's going on, but while each shop has its own personality and there might be something little quirky about the town, business is business, right? So if you have more going out than coming in, I don't care what town you're in, you're not going to be in business, right? If you don't evolve, 
I don't care what town you're in, you are not going to be in business. So you have to be able to understand the difference between what's some little quirk or whatever's going on and really what's what's big picture, right? Because there's business principles, there's accounting principles, and those things stay steadfast and true and steady, regardless of, of where you are. So, you know, we have to assess that. And then you look at where is the biggest hemorrhaging going on where we have to stop the bleeding first, because if you don't have any technicians, for example, and your parts margins off, whatever, 10%, listen, you're not going to care about your parts margin until I help you find technicians. Right. So we, we have to understand what, what is the immediate need and what's going to give the most return on investment for that member at the time and to be able to discuss it with them. Because I'll give you an example. Almost every single person that comes in, one of the things they need is more cars. They need more cars. Okay, so I'll, we'll look at their car count and they'll have too many cars, you know? So it's like, you don't need any more cars. And in fact, you have to cut down on some of them because you're only, you know, working on them for an hour a piece. You know, we need to get you to a minimum of 2.5 or up. And, but, the, and that's, you wouldn't believe what a huge shift that is. They're, they're just like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't, I, I can't, you know, cut down on my car count or no, I, they're, and they're stuck on, I need cars. So that's where we need to use the data and different things to show them. And again, you know, sometimes have them talk to somebody else in that area. Hey, you really believe this is unique to your town? Oh, absolutely. You can't do this. Okay. How about if I introduce you to Jay, he has a shop, you know, two miles from you in the same town and he's doing this. Would you be willing to speak to him? And so that helps a lot too, like with their peers are changing and, and moving on. And so, you know, there's, and, obviously there's, there's a ton of stuff that we'd be on here all day to go into, but we got, you have to know your audience. Right. And the other thing that I think is probably if there was a fault of shop owners is they don't, they're too humble sometimes, right? We're afraid to charge for that diagnostic because people might not think it's worth it. We're afraid to charge for this because people might not think it's worth it. You have to know your worth. And I I think most of our parents did a very good job as we were all growing up saying, don't get too big for your britches. Don't brag about yourself. You know, there's always somebody bigger and better. There's always, you know, and all of those things to humble you. So you don't get crazy like I did with my business and say, I know more than anybody. So it's hard to sort of break that cycle as crazy as it sounds. That's one of the first steps is you are worth it. You have worked your butt off. You have an amazing business. You're providing a service to your community. You're providing jobs. You're providing revenue. You're providing peace of mind and you are worth it. And and that's hard. And I see people do it all day long for other businesses. You want, you see it on Facebook. They will go into other businesses and brag about them and brag about meals or coffee. They'll post pictures. They'll do all this bragging. But then you look on their Facebook, there's not one post. Why aren't you checking into your own shop every morning? Why aren't you saying, wow, this was great here today? Why are you doing that for everybody else but not yourself? It, it You are so right there. And I, I think it's the service business in general, but that that is something that's going to become more and more important is being able to tell your story, not only to uh, customers, but we say the same thing for technicians. They have their choice of where to go. 
there's not enough of them. So you have to tell your story as to why you're a good place to work at. I think you hit that directly on the head right there because it is so true. Now, one thing I do want to go back and ask you about, you used the example of the parts margin and not working on that until you find a technician. And I think it's such a scenario that happens quite a bit. I say unique, but it happens everywhere because they're so focused on getting another tech. But one of the issues is foundation or it's it's core to why they can't find a tech in the first place is because maybe they're not paying enough or offering enough benefits. Absolutely. And in order to do that, you've got to get your parts more margin in, in check. You've got to make sure that you're charging the right rate. And and that's something that I've seen a lot of shops struggle with myself where I'm like, you know what? It's it's not the fact that you're you're going to have to pay that tech this amount of money. It's that you're not making enough money to be able to pay that tech enough money. So your foundational issue isn't that you can't find techs. It's that you're not making enough money to even be able to, to really go after those those really good techs. Exactly. And the, the benefits and, and the other things that people are looking for, vacation and all of that. So you have to have... You, you have to have, there's a basic foundation, right? That you have to have with everything. And it's, it's like building a house, you know, people use that example all the time for everything. If you don't have a strong foundation that you're building your house on, it might go up. It might look amazing, but the first wind, the first rain, the first, I don't know what a mouse runs through, whatever happens, it's going to come tumbling down. Right. So you have to have those foundational basics and be at least you know, where you need to be to be able to attract great help, right? And to to sustain and retain them. And that's all about culture and all of that. But it isn't just culture. You know, you have to have dollars that go with it, right? Because you could have the most amazing culture in the world, but if you're paying half of what everybody else is paying or only giving half the vacation of what everybody else is, they're going to eventually say, hey, why not me, right? And so it's important to again, prioritize and look at. So if your parts margin is is way off, then you have to work on that in tandem with finding the technicians, right? But if it's only needs to be tweaked a couple percent, then, you know, we're going to put more of a focus on the one than the other. But there are times that people come in and there's a lot that has to be, you know, restructured. And so we do our best to kind of, again, look at what's going to bring the most immediate return on investment for them and then sort of work in tandem like, well, we're doing this. Let's go ahead and tweak this a little bit so it's not too overwhelming. Because if anybody tries to make too many changes, and that's another big mistake we see, they they go in, they go to a conference, they listen to Jay's podcast, whatever, and then they go out to the shop and, oh my God, I just listened to this podcast and we're going to make these 35 changes right this minute, right? Forget about it. What happens, right? Everybody has a meltdown and nothing sticks. And so that's, it's so important to really make your choices with intent and follow through and have consistency and then keep building upon it. And I think that's where another problem comes in with belief issues that that won't work here. We tried that. Yeah. You tried that after you listened to a podcast five years ago and you had 50 other things that you were trying at the same time and you tried it for a week. So I'm sure it didn't work. So let's, let's try it again with a little bit more intent and, you know, some, some planning and process around it and the what ifs. And that's another thing. People are afraid to talk about the what ifs 
good or bad. So, you know, if we raise the labor rate, say, or we, whatever, offer more money to a technician or whatever, what could possibly go wrong? Let's talk about that. And then we can figure out what to do if that comes up. So if somebody says, oh my gosh, you know, you just raised your labor rate. Yes, we did. And here's why, Jay, you know, as you know, costs are going up. You know, we want to provide a good um, living for our family members that work here. They have families in turn. You know, this is affecting everybody and we aren't insulated from this. Our costs are going up as well, right? So if you don't have those conversations about what if, what, what if somebody says something bad? What if they don't like it? Let's talk about it. So if that comes up, we have something to say. And your poor service advisors aren't standing there like deer in the headlights going, yeah, the owner told us to do that yesterday. You know, <laughs> that, yeah. is, that is so that's such a good point that the communication side and, and arming your people with a proper response and even giving them education to understand why you did it in the first place. I know I've heard over the course of my career, so many technicians say, oh, you guys, you know, up front are making this much money, but we're only getting paid this. And the importance of sitting down and communicating with them as to why that's the case is so important because if they just, they're questioning in the back of their mind, oh, the owner's just taking home all this money. But in reality, it's in a scenario like you had where you you know the owner's frustrated because they're sitting back and saying I'm I'm not taking anything home I'm just trying to keep the doors open it, it you know I think there's such a lack of communication between management and technicians specifically and and service writers as well I think people could do themselves a huge favor by being open and transparent and communicating with their team as to why you're doing a certain thing and and I don't know if you if you see the same, but maybe that communication barrier is a is a big deal within a shop. It's huge. Here's what they see, right? And and we've all been employees, you know. I think most of us that you know, at least even if it was just one time or part time, whatever. You see the owner coming in with whatever fancy car, and you know you're billing whether it's 150 dollars an hour, whatever it is, and and you're making. $30 an hour. I'm just throwing crazy numbers. Sure. And you're watching all this stuff they're coming in and buying and their kids and they're this and they're that, and they're charging this to the shop and Amazon boxes are, and you're like, Hmm, well, must be nice. You know, <laughs> they have to do all that. And so we, we, I remember before I started the shop and actually the place I worked at while I was still, you know, starting the shop up, the, the, the owner of the business had um, a mistress. And so the mistress would come in in a fur coat <laughs> and a Jaguar and, you know, all this stuff and charge things and just roll in like you wouldn't believe. And then I don't know, whatever times got a little tough and, and in the economy and well, we had to take a 10% pay cut. Well, what's my first thing? Well, is your mistress going to take a 10% pay cut too? I'm thinking in my head, you know, because I don't see her lifestyle changing. So why the heck is mine? You know what I mean? Like, can, can you keep her out of the office until this is over at least? So I don't have to look at her fur coat and that. So I am not saying that, that shop owners shouldn't have nice things, but yeah. think about the context with them. If you're crying how, you know, times are tough and you're hurting and, oh, you can't give, here's the mistake I see. 
they say, Jay, listen, we can't give you a raise right now. I'm barely making ends meet. I can't give you health insurance. I'm barely making ends meet. And then the next day you come rolling in with a motorhome. Hey, Jay, do me a favor. Change the oil real quick on this. We're going away for the weekend, right? Be smart. I'm not saying hide your possessions or don't say that you have them because you deserve them, but don't flaunt them in somebody's face. If you're saying you don't have money, don't, don't do that. So, because that is so hypocritical and they know that you're lying, right? So obviously you have money or you wouldn't be doing that. And if things are that bad, sell the motor home and buy it when you can afford it. Right. So, so that's one thing Two, they don't understand. They see, you know, $150 an hour coming in for labor per hour, $150 an hour coming in for parts. So they're seeing $300 an hour coming in and they make 30. So in their head, they're like, hmm, you know, that's $270 an hour profit, right? So if you're transparent with them and let them know, like we do a drill about cost per car, you know, down to the penny, how much each car is costing for fixed costs, the cost of goods sold, the total cost. And I'll tell you what, when we do that with the service advisors, they are floored because they're like, I had no idea. I had no idea that this is how much this costs by the time you put all these things in here. And so they actually, then the average repair order, we see it shoot up because then the service advisor has an understanding of this is not a money grab. This is business. These are numbers. Numbers don't lie, right? And so if you want more health insurance or you want more vacation or you want whatever, we would love to provide them for you. But here's where we have to get to to be able to do that, right? And so if you're transparent and can show them, then that's it. And watch your words because when you're making changes or you're doing cost-cutting initiatives, make sure they understand the why. We're doing this so that you can have health insurance. We're doing this so we can increase your PTO, not just because, because then then it's a revolt. They want to fight against it. When you share with them the front and the back and you're transparent and you let them know that this is for the greater good, they, they jump on board and they want to be part of that as well. One of the things we do at Wrenchway is help technicians find great places to work. If you think your shop is a top shop, we want to hear from you. Wrenchway top shop pages are like resumes for shops. They share all the details technicians want to know about before they apply, such as compensation ranges for all levels, photos and videos of the service area, videos of technicians and managers, and frequently asked questions on work environment, career development, and hiring process. Attract more technicians to your shop by becoming a Wrenchway top shop. Visit wrenchway.com to contact us and learn more. Link is in the show notes. One of one of the best meetings I've ever been a part of was when I was on the dealer side and I was down in South Carolina and there was this general manager that had some valid concerns that there was theft happening in the shop, right? And and as he started kind of diving into it, started noticing that the technicians had pretty much the same mindset that you're talking about, right? Where other shops making all this money, I'm not getting paid what I should be. So he, he, it was after hours, he brought the team into the conference room and he, before he, he, before he let the team in the conference room, he had written this huge dollar amount on the, on the whiteboard. And so all of them came in, I was sitting in the room with the technicians and all of them were looking at that number and like, nobody knew what it was. Right. And so he gave them about five to 10 minutes and then walked in the room and said, I want 
everybody in here to guess what that number is. And so they went around, nobody guessed it. It was their break-even number per month. And in order for us to make any money, clear any money, we have to make more than that. And so all of their jaws dropped and it was just almost like that that light bulb moment. And it was so impactful for me as a, a young uh, person in this business to see you know, how they communicated it. And then what it did once that flipped that switch, then they dove into the details of what it meant. Like, how do we get to this point? Why is, you know, what are the expenses that lead up to this? And even showing something like a light bill to them, an electric bill was super impactful. And that's where I love everything that you're saying right there, because that for me personally was one of the most impactful moments I had in my career to this point. It's it it is very impactful and and just be transparent because again they they don't understand you know and if sadly if you don't pay people what they think they're worth and they feel like they're getting cheated on the other side they will cheat you whether it's they don't work the full hour that they build you for on their card or they take a quart of oil or they do whatever you know it's sad to say and. I don't care how great your culture is. I don't care, you know, and, and continue to work on that amazing culture. And it'll be an amazing world one day when we have 100% complete, honest people, you know, all over, but they will, I mean, I've seen it time and time and again, where, you know, they start taking things and they start shaving time and they start because they feel like it's owed to them because you didn't pay them for whatever. So they're going to get their money because they have mouths to feed and they have a whole way of justifying it in their head about what it is. You know, one of the huge, and everybody probably knows is productivity, labor productivity. And it, it boggles my mind that we pay so little attention to that. And that's where I love the collision industry. They can only charge like $45 an hour or something because of insurance. Mike, we would be gone. Like automotive repair would be gone if that's what we had to charge. Cause we, we are not efficient in most cases and we don't maximize our productivity. And one of the things that, you know, I, I talk to people about when I look at if they're 60% productive, 7%, 80, whatever it is, I look at that number and they say, well, yeah, but then they got to pull cart, you know, and all kinds of excuses and limiting beliefs come in. And so in the beginning, I would fight with that a lot. And then finally, I flipped the script and I would just say, wow, Jay, you know, talking about your numbers for the week in the portal. And I would ask them about, you know, parts and I'd say, oh, man. I just hung up from a shop today and they were getting, you know, buying filters or whatever and found out that for every hundred filters they were buying, the parts place was only dropping off 70. And they were like, oh my God, if that happened to me, I'd be on the phone with that parts place. And I would be like, you better bring me my money or you better bring me my parts. And they go off on this whole tangent. And I just smile and say, I'm so glad you feel that way, Jay, because that's what's happening with your labor, your labor's inventory, right? And talk about a limiting belief. We look at parts inventory and we understand if we pay for 100 filters, we want 100 filters. But labor will pay for 100 hours and we don't care if it's 70 or 80 or 90 or 60 because we have to, we find all these reasons. So that's another huge Limiting belief. People, if you get nothing else out of this, <laughs> labor is your inventory. Treat it like you would your parts inventory. It's such good information that you're sharing today and, and things that I, I think are 
obviously really important. One of the, I guess, the, to segue to it, maybe, or pivot to a, a separate topic that's off the same cuff is process and the importance of having process in a shop. Are, are there common themes that you see with shops where they struggle with process? Almost all of them. So <laughs> especially coming in processes, I don't know. It's very hard for most business owners to wrap their head around in our industry. If you look at other industries, and I, I really invite anybody to go just spend it. If you have a buddy that works in the food industry or works in the you know lumber industry or whatever, go ask them seriously. And I'm not being facetious. Ask them if you can go follow them or shadow them for a day, because you will see almost every other industry has very set processes that they do not deviate from. And the limiting belief about processes in our industry is if they follow the process, it will slow them down. And they most of them throw the processes out the window when they get busy. And really, the processes will insulate them and protect them when they're busy. One of the things I always have my clients watch is The Founder about Ray Kroc. I don't know. One of my one of my favorite movies of all time. There's so yes. many business lessons in there. Yes. And I yes. tell them, you know, whenever did you hear Ray Kroc or anybody say, listen, there's a line in that drive through We don't have time for pickles today. Stop putting pickles on the burn. Never, never, never does that happen. But we stopped doing DVIs. We stopped calling the customers. We stopped doing the thank you calls. We stopped doing all these things when we're busy. And then we're starting all over again from day one. And the processes protect you when it's busy because if you stick to them, it becomes muscle memory. And then it makes sure that when you're under stress and you're under a load and you're backed up and there's lines around the building that we don't forget anything or shortchange anyone. Yeah, I, I I struggle with process myself, right? My business partner is amazing with with process. And it's been a blessing to have him on our, like to have us join forces because that's always something I've struggled with. And I always knew the importance of why process was so important. And it's, it's something that I see and maybe even growing up in a shop, maybe that could be a little bit of why we didn't, you know, it was really. You guys just running amok, running amok out there all day. Right. But then, I mean, if you think about it, going back to your core issue, Maybe that shop does have too much car count, right? Where they're, it's forcing them to go out of habits. And it really is, you know, as I've gotten older and understood the importance of, of process and making sure that you're doing it the same way every single time so that things don't get missed, it, it brings so much value to the business and it makes you look so much more professional uh, especially in a shop setting. And as we're trying to justify our labor rates going up and being able to tell that story, when when you feel like you've got it all together, when you go to tell that story, it doesn't seem so foreign then, right? Because you've put together processes and that's what builds a really strong business, right? Absolutely. And if you don't have strong processes, then really it's it's a crapshoot for a lack of nicer way to say it. It's a crapshoot about the service that your external customers are going to get from your internal customers. And I don't care if it's a mom and pop business. I don't care if it's a chain. I don't care what it is. If you don't follow your processes, it's, it's, it is just straight up a crapshoot. So you know, 
how do I know as a consumer, if I'm going to your shop, Jay, and, you know, last time I came in, you vacuumed my car, you cleaned my windshield, you took it to a car wash, and you gave me a beautiful digital inspection with 30 pictures. So I think that's what I'm to expect from your shop, right? Because that process you had set that expectation, and this is what I'm going for. Then I come back in in three months, and I get a, a, a DVI with three pictures on it. You didn't clean my windshield. You didn't take my car to the car wash and whatever. So how am I going to feel? I'm going to feel horrible. And I'm be like, well, you know, I knew that was too good to be true. So do I go back now a third time to see? Because no, not me, because you already told me you're inconsistent. So you have to have a process and that sets the expectations and your customers, both internal, external, have to understand what they are. And it is not fair to a customer because you're not properly managing your card count or your schedule or anything else to come in and not get that service. You know, I here's something outside the industry. There's a, a nail salon that gives wine. I don't, I'm not a wine drinker, but my friends are. So I had friends come into town and I said, Oh, we're going to go. You're going to love this nail salon because you know, they serve wine and they were like, Oh, I can't wait. So we get there and I've gone, I don't know how many times. And they asked me, do you want wine? No, thank you. Whatever. So we, we go, they get in there and then there isn't any wine. And then my friends started complaining. You said that there was going to be wine here. And I'm like, I don't know. So then I said, to the guy, you know, do you have wine for them or whatever? And they're like, oh yeah, we have some in the back we could give you. So it was like, well, where, where was this service that I told them about? So then that kind of made me, they're my best friends, so they didn't care, but that kind of made me look bad, right? That I'm like highly recommending this place. Here's the service you're going to get. And the same thing with consistency with your internal customers. It makes me crazy and, it, and this is another limiting belief that it's okay to have people do different kinds of work, meaning the pride and ownership in their job. So it's like every shop I speak to in the beginning, oh, well, Jay does a phenomenal, you know, DVI. He's our best one at it. You know, Bobby does an okay one. Jimmy really hates them. So we're lucky if we can get three pictures. So what am I, I, it's like Russian roulette. I'm like, oh, gee, you know, who am I going to get today? Do I get the guy that really cares about the, the inspection? Do I get the guy that's like, eh, or am I getting the guy that hates it? Like, what, what do I get? And that, that uncertainty creates anxiety as a manager too, right? Oh my if, gosh. If, if you don't have people following that. Now, that brings up another really interesting topic, which is accountability and holding people accountable to the process. So we do with our members surveys for culture and engagement, and they're based upon the science and research and developed by Don Ream, who Ream, you probably know the name of Ream Air Conditioning. And he grew up watching sort of dysfunction in his family's business and said, I don't want any part of that. Um, So I'm going to do my own thing. And he started studying about like why does this all have white employees act like this? And he wrote a book called Thrive by Design, which is fabulous. So we have a very, very intensive engagement survey that we administer to for the shops and we follow up on them every year and we watch the growth and help them work through it. But the number one thing, the number one thing almost on every single shops is if it's not, it's either one, two or three out of them is that accountability and that the, their manager allows other people to get away with things that they shouldn't. And people resent that they, they resent it. And 
if you don't think for a minute and think about, you know, even yourself in any transaction, if you are in line at, at a store and one line's moving quicker than the other, you resent that. You're like, why am I in the slow lane? How come I, you know, we're human beings. And so we, we are flawed. We are flawed beings. And we resent when, when something, somebody seems to be getting something that we're not. And especially if we're working really hard for it. And that's another thing that, is really with limiting beliefs is that you can just keep piling on the people that really work hard and do a great job and then let the other slide because that is so dangerous, so dangerous to do. And it, and it creates an inequity that sometimes is very difficult to come back from. Any best practices in terms of holding people accountable? Obviously, the process has to be there to have them have something to hold them accountable to. But, you know, I think there's a lot of managers that have a difficult time with that of pointing out something that somebody didn't do or uh, when they didn't follow a process, being able to call them out for that without, you know, disrespecting them. Any any thoughts or, or advice to that that shop manager that might be struggling with that? Sure. So one, we have to take the emotion out of it, right? And we have to remember that that's, it's, you're disagreeing with the action they're taking and not the person, right? So sometimes we allow ourselves to get too personal, like, oh, that Jay is doing that again, you know, instead of Jay is a great guy, but you know, he didn't follow this, right? So we have, we have to keep that separate. The, the, I think sometimes the saying is what separate the sinner from the sin, you know, it's, it's that. So you one, as you said, you have to have very clear expectations. So there cannot be any question or room for interpretation, because if there's room for interpretation, it's going to go another way. And trying to have a great culture and appreciate your team does not mean that you never hold them accountable. And that's something that we really see, especially today, or if people are afraid to say anything because they're like, oh my gosh, they, they'll go quit and work somewhere else. And so you cannot be afraid of that. If you gave them the proper training, you're providing them with the proper resources that they need, and you're having communication with them, we highly recommend one-on-ones every week to talk to them and, and go over things. We love also, you know, shop huddles in the morning. But when you lay out somebody's job description and their expectations and you go over things, you need to really sit down and say, you know, do you understand it? Are there anything you have questions on? Is there anything you disagree with? And when they say, no, I understand I have this and you have them sign it and you put it in their folder and you know that that's in there. And so when they're not following a process or a procedure, it's really easy on your one-on-one because you have this carved out, you know, I think the the popular word today now is like safe zone, you know, that every week they know they're meeting with you and, you know, you can say to them, you know, what, if it's attendance policy coming in late every day, you can pull that out and say, Jay, you know, can you help me out here? I, this was the policy. Is there anything you don't understand? Because you had signed this and said you did. No, I understand it. So help me out here. You know, what, what can we do? So, you know, there's five questions of accountability that I can share with you if for the listeners too, but yeah. you want to, you want to make sure. And so if they understand what they're doing, you know, what steps are they going to do to correct that? And you know, why we want to always find out why is it happening? Because, you know, sometimes managers are like, I don't care why it's happening. They better get here. 
sometimes people are really having a hardship or somebody in their family might be taking the car to chemo because that's the most reliable. And so they're using something that's not like we want to still be human and find out the why. And so, you know, if it's just because somebody's lazy, then what can we do, you know, for that? Can we get them an alarm clock? Can we have somebody call them? What, you know, what steps do they want to take? And are, are they willing to change? And that's something, you know, what are you willing to do to change this behavior? And as long as you're respectful in your tone and not speaking down to them, but ask good open-ended questions, you'll be fine. And also though, make sure that you're equally when they do something over and above or doing a good job, you're also telling them that. And I'm not talking about making a sandwich, you know, what kind of sandwich they call it, that if I say something to Jay, why are you coming in late? I have to say, oh, you know, you wash three cars really good, but why are you coming in late? Right. Cause that's a mixed message. You, yeah. you know, if you're not doing what you're supposed to, you're not following the process or the expectation, then you need to speak about that and not mix it in with a bunch of compliments, but know that if they're doing something over and above during the week, you need to be paying attention to that as well. I think it's so important when you're onboarding a new employee to have those expectations and thoroughly going through those expectations of a job description. And then you talk about having that weekly meeting, making sure it's not a weekly meeting where they're just terrified of going to it every week, right? Like getting them no. some some level of positivity, but then being able to to you know, on the weeks where they did miss something or something wasn't right, being able to to call them out on that, but not having it, you know, I, I think you just had so much good advice there. I think that's uh, uh, from a, an accountability standpoint, so important to have it clear in your own head as you're going to talk to uh, that employee. And that's where you want to also spend time. Don't go and be not prepared for the meeting. So have a conversation with yourself in your office and say, okay, I'm going to ask this. Here's the possible answers. Out of these three possible answers I could come up with, you know, how will I respond, not react to them, right? And, you know, what will I say? How will I handle this? Because there's, there isn't anything worse than, you know, manager running into the one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's on Zoom or, you know, in person, they're flipping a folder and they're checking their text messages and they're not really prepared. And then somebody says, gives a response and they're like, they don't have anything to say, right? I mean, it's it's pretty obvious most of the time what somebody's going to say, you know, when when you present them with whatever. So, think about those scenarios and how will you again respond to that? How will you answer that? And you have to also know your non-negotiables, right? So, an example I can give you is someone not too long ago was speaking to me. Somebody they're on the cell phone, they're on the cell phone, they're on this, you know. They keep having talks. It's not going anywhere. And then finally, you know, the owner had had enough because they didn't really follow through with stuff. They here and there would get mad and go have a talk. But they were at the front counter. And so we came in and the person was playing a game, I think, or a text. I don't remember exactly. But the owner said, are you going, you know, wait on. And they're like, wait a minute, I have to finish sending this text. <laughs> <That was laughs> the owner blew his cork, right? So 
I, and I understand, right. Why they would be so upset. That just was so rude. But then after the cut, so now you're making the customer so uncomfortable because you're having this thing after the customer leaves, he's like, that's it. I'm done. No more with the phone. And the, and the employee said, are you seriously telling me right now? I cannot use my phone during the day. And the owner said, yes. He said, then I quit. And so the owner's texting me. He's like, what should I do? And I'm like, what should you do? They're telling you that they have, so he, you know, said, no, you can't do that. And so that employee left. And so you have to know what your non-negotiables are, right? And shorthanded or not, there's things that we cannot tolerate. And certainly a customer being ignored while somebody finishes a text after many talkings to, but before, you know, you make that final decision, Ask yourself, did I provide all the resources they needed to do this properly? Did I provide all the training that they needed to do this? Did I counsel this, you know, internal customer and the ways that we can work around it and all of that? And if you can answer that, yes, then it's an easy decision because you've done everything you can do. This is amazing. Uh, Really, really good conversation, Kim. (laughs) I, 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 it, it is so many things that shop, there were so many things that shops can work on and and just be better at right and i think you've done such a good job of outlining it i think we could have probably gone for the rest of the day talking about various uh, aspects of the industry but i appreciate you taking some time to lay this out to to shops i think it's really important i think it's really important for technicians to understand this stuff as well so so i i appreciate it how if if somebody wants to get in touch with you or with ati how how should they reach out they can reach out to me at khickey at autotraining.net and that's H-I-C-K-E-Y. So khickey at autotraining.net. Or you could Google autotraining.net, Automotive Training Institute. Yes, we'll we'll make sure to put some links in the show notes. And a huge pleasure to have you on and always look forward to our conversations. Thank you so much, Jay. Bye-bye, everybody. Mm -hmm.